Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. I'm going to build this episode as a twerking Lindsay Lohan episode, if you don't mind. That sounds good to me. All right. Content. Beware that word, content. What is it? Is it news? Is it is it advertising? Is it real? Was it faked? Shut up. It's content. It's all content now. We are all content creators or my favorite content providers. We don't create anything. We just provide content. That word, content, appears 48 times in the CBC's just released 2020 strategy plan. The word news appears in the same plan 14 times. The word journalism appears once. It's a little passage about uh, the CBC's sports journalism uh, where that word appears. What else can I tell you about this plan? We've been talking about this plan and we've been waiting for this plan. You've heard me say, what is their plan? All we hear about are the cuts. What are they going to do besides just get smaller and smaller and fire people? So we got the plan now. What else can I say about it? Well, it's a plan for a digital CBC. I can tell you that, folks. Today, the plan says technology fits in your pocket. Tomorrow, it may be sewn into it. Huh. According to the plan, the CBC is inverting its priorities. Right now, digital and mobile are the last priorities in the CBC's priority food chain. By 2020, they will be the top priorities. With that in mind, President Hubert Lacroix has said he doesn't care what widget you use. CBC is going to be a fantastic content company. 
And yet, the same plan promises to significantly reduce in-house production in the next five years. Everything except for news and current affairs are going to try to outsource. And I guess I just want to take a second to contemplate the total contradiction in terms that these two thrusts of the 2020 plan suggest. On the one hand, Hubert Lacroix is promising a platform agnostic CBC that just makes great content regardless of which widget. Why did he have to say widget? Regardless of which widget, which screen, whether you're getting it on your tablet or your phone or through legacy media, they're just going to make this great content, but they're going to stop making that content. They're just going to buy it from independent producers. It doesn't make any sense. You have to choose. Either you have the big mainstream broadcasting network, you own the platform, you have the frequency, and you go out and you buy the best content you possibly can to put on the platform, but what you're providing is that platform, or you just make fantastic, great content, and you wash your hands in this tumultuous time when everything is up in the air. You wash your hands of how people consume it. Those are two approaches. The traditional approach still makes a lot of sense because most people still get their TV through, you know, TV and not through the internet. The other approach is really progressive because people are not going to be doing that forever. But you have to choose one. You can't do both. That's not a plan. It's just the CBC. It's just the murky middle. It's just, uh, it's not going to work. So what would work? How about this? How about the CBC gets out of the TV game entirely? It's expensive. It loses money. It's never been particularly successful. And the trends are going against that medium anyhow. Just get out. Turn off your TV signal. Close down the stations. Focus on radio. Focus on news. Hey, focus on video content, documentaries, but put it all online and become a true content company. Now, that is not a very modest proposal. It is a radical proposal. It's actually not my proposal, though uh, I'm pretty sympathetic to it. It is not my idea. It is the idea of a guy who used to be the managing editor and chief journalist of CBC Radio, Jeffrey Dvorkin, who went on to become the vice president of news for NPR, also its ombudsman. These days, he is back in Canada as the director of the journalism program at the University of Toronto. And you're going to hear me talk with him in a moment. Uh, we recorded this interview before the CBC's 2020 plan came out. Wait for it. It's coming right up. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. 
They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. You want to read a good book, read The Night of the Gun. A reporter investigates the darkest story of his life, his own, by David Carr, media columnist for the New York Times. You can go out and buy it, or you can download an audiobook of it for free right now. There's a 13 and a half hour audiobook by this really compelling journalist, David Carr, who used to be a drug addict. It's more than a memoir, it's a really interesting work of journalism. And you can just go get it for free at audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand right now. You go there, they sponsor this podcast, you sign up for a free 30-day trial, and you can download any book from their library of 150,000 audiobooks for free. So you should do that at audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. I would like my students to graduate and be bomb throwers. Yeah. And end up wherever they go and question, well, why are we doing it this way? Why do we have to do it this way? And I was told by people at Ryerson, you don't criticize media organizations ever because they're the ones that are going to get our graduates' jobs. My response was then basically journalism schools are hiring halls, and I don't think that's what journalism schools are good for. Well, if they are hiring halls, they're not very effective ones these days. Not anymore, yeah. It's not necessarily their fault, but I would question – the ethics, or I would raise the question of, of what are the ethics of training thousands of people every year for an industry that, that for all intents and purposes, doesn't really exist as a, a hiring going enterprise. That's right. And the, uh, there was a story the other day that the number of paid journalists in the United States has dropped by 30% in the last five years. Uh-huh. But the number of people in public relations, communications fields has increased by about that much. So it may just be a wash. Yeah. And in fact, most of the people I know who have left journalism have gone into PR and marketing and communications. And it can be the dark side, depending on what you do with it. I mean, I once was asked if I would come to work for a very big public relations firm in Washington. And I said, well, what would I do? And they said, well, we would like to assign you to handle the World Wrestling Federation file. They would like to lobby Congress to have Congress acknowledge that wrestling is an acceptable form of family violence. You missed your calling. Apparently. You would have been great. I could have done it. (laughs) It's always been a source of conflict in journalism that we have had to pretend that there isn't an aspect of what we do that is supposed to be getting those eyeballs. And this has nothing to do with the internet, that it was always important. Nobody really wants to hire a reporter who's going to report on stuff that nobody wants to read. If no one's reading your work, there is an aspect of entertainment to this job, no matter what, I would say. Well, and I think that's the reality that journalism has always had. Uh, You don't want to do something that is so rarefied that nobody looks at it. You're absolutely right. I met a publisher of a small 
uh, Brooklyn newspaper and we were talking in the usual ponderous way that journalists do about what is the most important thing that journalism has to have. And we all said, you know, truth, justice in the American way or versions thereof. And this woman, an older woman who had been around a little bit said, all that's nonsense. The most important thing for journalism is advertising. Mm -hmm. And she was right to the extent that until you have a way that you can figure out how to make money out of what you're doing, it's kind of pointless. The question is, how do you get the right balance? How do you get the right mix of content that is both important and appealing and yet still has the values of credibility and integrity, all the things that journalism has always looked for? And that's the challenge now for all media, but especially for public broadcasting, which, as your blog has discussed, how do you find that balance in public broadcasting when there are so many competing interests, where the management is looking to uh, be less uh, offensive than it uh, than perhaps it should be? It should it should raise hackles. I think the the value of good public broadcasting say you're listening to the radio in the morning, is for coffee to be spewed across the breakfast table where someone says, my God, Martha, did you hear what they just said? That to me is valuable public broadcasting. It's valuable journalism, whatever the medium is. When journalism in general and public broadcasting in particular is pulling its horns in and is afraid to offend or afraid to be a little bit shocking. That's when public broadcasting loses its value. And part of that, I mean, we can talk about this with the CBC, uh, ha started in the, in, the, in the late 80s. And there was a terrific scholarly work done by David Terrace, his scholarly article about what happened to the CBC. And his claim was that after Meech Lake collapsed, the CBC was accused of being so intrusive on the political process that the politicians were unable to come to an agreement. Trina McQueen, who was running English television at the time, was hauled up before uh, the board of the CBC and was told, don't do this again. What had happened was is that Newsworld, the all-news network, had just begun. They covered the Meech Lake negotiations like a old blanket, a politician, a provincial premier couldn't go to the loo without someone from CBC television sticking a microphone in his face and saying, well, have you come to an agreement yet? And the conclusion of the politicians was that the CBC was intrusive and that it, it was the CBC's fault, in specifically CBC TV News and the Ottawa Bureau that got in the way of a Meech Lake Accord. So Trina was hauled up before the board and was told, you must tell your journalists never to do this again. And Trina said, you're telling me that I have to tell my journalists that they can't do their job? I won't do it, at which point she was fired. And I, when I saw this, it suddenly made sense that the CBC had become a government department. And the goal of a government department is to please as many constituents as possible and offend as few as possible. And this became the model for, certainly for CBC television. When Trina was fired, she was kind of brought back in a kind of a gesture of reconciliation to sit on the board of the CBC, and she hated it because every time there was a journalistic issue that came up before the board, she and Peter Herrendorf, the other person who knew something about broadcast journalism, 
were basically shut down by the board who were increasingly political appointees. It became a dreadful culture of accommodation and anxiety about not offending your political masters. What you're telling me is is so fascinating and so disturbing. I have done countless talking head hits on News World and now CBC News Network, it's called. The idea that there was a time when that news channel would cover something of such political significance as the Meech Lake Accord with the same kind of blanket coverage that CNN dedicated to the OJ case is unthinkable now. It's unthinkable that they would have feet on the ground just dogging politicians and demanding answers and making themselves intrusive as we're supposed to do. That's exactly what journalism is supposed to do. That's exactly what public broadcasting is supposed to do. I mean, what they do now is they go through what's been in the paper that morning and what's on the internet today, and they get people like me to come in and gab about it for three minutes. I mean, it's the opposite of uh, what a point of pride to be thought of by politicians that way, that that the CBC is uh, becoming such a nuisance that they that, that you can't go to the bathroom without being asked a question. I mean, you can't imagine hearing a complaint like that these and, days. And I think that that's, you know, when you look back on those halcyon days of, you know, 20 years ago or, or now a little more, it was a time when the CBC really understood what its mandate was supposed to be, certainly in news and information. When I was running CBC Radio and Radio News, the idea was is that you had boots on the ground, that the, the goal of broadcast journalism in general and, and CBC broadcasting in particular was to bear witness mm-hmm. and, to, and to bring those, that value. Now, it was a, it was a different time. And here's, here's my recovering historian, the recovering historian in me. In 1986, a guy called Dick Salant was asked to take over CBS News. He went up to a budget meeting at BlackRock head office on on 6th Avenue, New York. And then he came back to the newsroom over on 57th and and 10th. And he called an all-staff meeting. Everybody panicked. You know, boss calls an all-staff meeting. Something big has happened. They rushed into the studio where the Cronkite show was put on. And uh, Salant said, well, I've got good news and bad news. Which do you want first? And they said, well, give us the good news first. He said, okay. The good news is, for the first time in the storied 50-year history of CBS News, the news division by itself has made a profit. And that's the bad news. Mm -hmm. Because he knew that every fiscal year after that, the news department would be expected to bring in larger and larger and larger amounts of money. But for the first time, it didn't have to be supported by entertainment or sports or any of the other things. That was the first thing that started to change. And then when you could monetize news, then the values start to change. The second thing that happened in the early 90s was the introduction of digital media. We're sitting here surrounded by digital media. But it meant that you didn't need a crew to go and gather the news the news became technologically simplified. That meant that you didn't need a crew of seven, which is what the BBC had back in the 80s, mm-hmm. to go out and do a minute 30 story for the nightly television news. You could do it with maybe five, and then maybe three, and then maybe two, and then maybe one. 
The third thing that happened was O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson was a boon to ratings because you had cameras in the court, you had an inherently dramatic story, you had the trifecta of race, murder, and celebrity. And then you had a guy standing outside the court doing a summary at the end of the day. And the ratings shot through the roof. And so the idea that news can become a marketable commodity that attracts a lot of eyeballs if you do it right. I've got, you know, my fingers up in the air on there, that. There one. are air quotes, yes. Air quotes. And, and you can do it really cheaply. Yeah. And that changed everything. And at the CBC, we went through a number of iterations of uh, hauling in consultants, the curse of the consultant culture at the CBC really took over. And McKinsey came in and did this huge study on the CBC and the audience and what it wants. And they came back and they said, well, the audience doesn't want to do all the things that happen to cost you a lot of money, like foreign news. And when I got to NPR in 98, I, about a year later, I saw an article in the Harvard Business Review called Confessions of an Ex-McKinseyite. Anonymous, mm -hmm. where the writer said, when media organizations hired us, we basically lied. We told them what they wanted to hear. They told us, we're looking for ways to do it more efficiently. No problem, boss. The McKinsey report said, get rid of all the things that cost money, like bureaus in state houses or provincial legislatures or overseas news, where in fact... That's exactly what the audience wants. And the CBC has bought into that culture of consultancy, and it has deformed what the CBC has done really well up to now. It doesn't mean that the CBC doesn't have to be – doesn't have to adapt. It has to adapt like all media organizations are trying to adapt. But this, the CBC became a kind of a, a hybrid of commercial broadcasting. It took on all of the attributes – and disguised what it really was. Yeah. And, and that became the problem. And more recently, in the early part of this century, about 10 years ago, the CBC hired a consulting group uh, called the Frank Magid and Associates yep. to redo how journalism is done. When I was still in Washington, I was working for an organization called Committee of Concerned Journalists. We ran out of money, so that didn't end very well. But while I was still there, we published a study on local television news called We Interrupt This Newscast. And we looked at the Magid effect on local television news, which was the old if it bleeds, it leads philosophy. Um, and we looked at, with the help of Pew, the research uh, group in, into journalism in, in the United States, we looked at what we looked at 34,000 local television reports and analyzed which reports the audience was neutral about which stories they were actually interested in and which ones did they dislike so much that they turned away in a measurable amount and we discovered that undifferentiated uncontextualized crime reporting is what the audience hates the most. That in fact, when they have a story that has, 
you know, flashing police lights and yellow tape, the audience will switch away by as much as 7%. Mm-hmm. And this is what Magid had been pushing. And the CBC – and once we published that story – Apparently, Magid couldn't get another contract in the United States, so they came up to Canada and sold this crap to the CBC. And there are still Magid types wandering around saying, you got to do crime reporting, you have to lead with live, you have to lead with violence, at a time when crime is falling in this country in a way that it, that it, that it never has. Yet the amount of coverage of crime on CBC television, especially local CBC television, has gone up something like four or five hundred percent, and it's just to me that is such a waste of of talent. The other thing that the CBC has done in the news department is that they have tapped into government sources of information in a way that is, I think, appalling. What do they cover more than anything else? Weather, traffic, and crime. What are the sources for those stories? Weather, Environment Canada. Traffic, Ministry of Transport, the highway people in every province. And crime is the cops. All three are government sources of information. Mm-hmm. So where is, the, where is the independent reporting that should be coming out? Now, there still is some, thank goodness, at the CBC. But it's being drowned by this awful magadization of, of local information. Well, you made a, a ton of points there. Let me see if I can uh, catch up with you. I suffered through a maggot presentation. I was uh, on a committee to uh, reinvent the national as an online entity. And uh, you can see how well that went <laughs> if you check out the national's website. But I remember that the big takeaway, they, they presented this information that they had polled thousands of Canadians on what the CBC means to them. And the top answer they got was news. Okay. I don't know how much money that cost. I, uh, I would have told them that for a sandwich. But that's not the worst advice for the CBC to get. Your brand is news. Focus on that. That's worth something if they had taken that to heart. I'm not sure that they did. And when you turn on CBC and you see Kevin O'Leary, it seems like a bad Canadian imitation of a Fox News pundit or host when you turn on the CBC and you get bad Canadian imitations of American sitcoms and dramas and reality television shows. One wonders whether or not news and news reporting, or even if you watch their newscast, if you watch The National, you're not really watching the news a lot of the time. You know, you talk about how CBS for decades did not turn a profit in the news division. Uh, Again, I return to the idea that it's possible that the kind of news that we're both talking about, the the kind of news that is most beneficial, is never going to be profitable news. Right. And and when you you focus on digital media merely uh, in terms of the gear that lets people collect news for less money than ever, I think we're missing the biggest part of the digital effect on news, which is distribution. Why did companies like CBS take a bath on news for decades? Because our licenses demanded it. Because we had an idea that the airwaves were public property. And if you wanted a license to make money by showing sitcoms and everything else and game shows on TV, you also had to include a newscast. That model is destroyed by the internet. There is no scarcity. There's no channels or frequencies that we have to dole out and make demands of people. You can put anything, and the CRTC has decided not to regulate the internet. So 
if you are Netflix or anyone else, there is no government demand on you to provide news. So who's going to do it then? And that takes us back to the CBC. Right. And in 1999 at NPR, we looked around and we realized that all the things that NPR was providing, the then about 600 stations, it's now up to 900 stations, that NPR provides content for, we couldn't do it all. And so we, because the customers own the company at NPR, NPR doesn't own any stations. It's simply a, to use the phrase, a content provider. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to our owners, the stations, and we said, we can't do it. We just cannot do everything you are, have, that we've been giving you up to now. So if you had to choose, what would you want NPR to give you? It was a long <laughs> and complicated and painful discussion, as you can imagine, in public broadcasting. Anyway, they came back to us and they said, give us the best news and information you can provide and leave the culture to us at the mm-hmm. local level. Because providing you know, music shows from Washington, D.C. for Boston and Charlestown, West Virginia and Kansas City and San Francisco, kind of different places with different interests. So we got out, we said, okay, fine, we'll do that. We'll stop doing classical music, jazz, spoken word, and drama, and we'll let you do all that stuff. And so we took the money we had left at NPR, and we poured it into news. So we hired 45 journalists with the money we had left, which is a lot for a, I mean, I think NPR at that point only had 400 employees. We hired 45 journalists, and we expanded the coverage, both domestically and internationally, and we tripled the ratings in five years, and they basically stayed there. We still covered cultural issues, but we covered it as news stories. For example, a great one I love to repeat is uh, we discovered that the city in the United States that has the fastest-growing classical music audience is, fingers on your buttons. I have no idea. Las Vegas, Nevada. Why is that? We sent a reporter out there to discover what is it about Vegas that has this phenomenal hidden culture of classical music. When Yo-Yo Ma comes to play, 2,000 people show up for a concert. It's because of the Bellagio, isn't it? It must be that. It's, I think, an antidote to the predominant culture. Also, a lot of retired people there. Right. And it's a big union town. Uh Uh-huh. So all of these things kind of created an interesting way to look at a cultural phenomenon that would have been completely unheard of. I'm following everything but the union aspect. Is well, that uh, are Teamsters really into? Uh, they're into education. They're, yeah. in, they're into they're into uh, you know a kind of a broccoli approach to culture. Right. Especially in the United States, where they are very involved in a lot of community organizing, education for immigrants, language education for Hispanic immigrants, stuff like that. NPR still will do those kinds of stories, really interesting stories. Um, And that, I guess, has allowed NPR to shed where it's necessary that fusty old good-for-you granola-y – I mean, if I listen to KCRW or certain, you know, uh, WNYC – it feels like urban, hip, intellectual public radio. If I go to like rural Maine, it still sounds like that old NPR with classical music and, yeah. and people speaking with very soft voices. But that is probably how it should be. They, they mold to their local environment. And they're very successful at it. Yeah. They're not 
afraid to embrace their core audience, which I think is one of the, the other thing that's that's kind of missing at CBC is they don't really understand audience. They don't understand their audience. And maybe there's a differentiation here between radio and television. I think radio, CBC Radio, understands and kind of embraces its geeky audience a little better than CBC Television does. CBC Television is still kind of deformed by its commercial aspects. Yeah. Let's talk about that because you've written about this. So your advice is CBC should just get out of TV, kill TV. Well, I, I was being a little puckish, I suppose, but uh, but I'm not entirely being a provocateur on this. I, I think that if the way of the future seems to be to go online, why are we still broadcasting? Mm-hmm. What if the CBC said, okay, everything's going to be streamed video and audio, and we will can partner with Sirius XM, and we will make it available online in a way that involves the government because the government should still be involved in supporting public broadcasting, I believe. But it also forces people to make different kinds of editorial choices. If you're going to create stuff that's going online, you have a different kind of capacity than if you're restricted to a one-hour program with commercial inserts. And it also gives you the freedom to make the choices that you think your audience will be interested in if you consider your audience as citizens first and consumers of media second. Yeah. Well, you know what? You're more radical than I, uh, but I think I agree with you. My my, uh, prescription was they should get out of commercial TV and become something more of a PBS-style news and documentary kind of service. And, you know, I think that their mission becomes much less ambiguous when there's no commercials involved and they take what they get from the government and they do the best they can with it. It would alleviate even more financial burden – to do something like what you're saying, and and I guess it is more of an NPR model of saying, we make the content, and you can consume it however you want. And if there was an app, a CBC app that was fed to anyone with a Roku or you know or a smart TV of any kind, and then you know you say being restrained to an hour, sometimes you're forced to fill an hour, and you've only got a five minute story. The, the beauty of digital media is if I've got a fifteen minute podcast, that's what I put out. If I have an hour long podcast, I put that out. And I think that that's that's exactly the point is that we're looking at how pe- we're at a certain point now where how media is consumed is changing very rapidly. And yes, people are saying, yeah, but people still watch TV, and and how are you going to change their habits? We've helped people change their habits continuously through the introduction of new technology. When radio came in, people said people will never buy radio sets, and they did. Television. I'm old enough to remember my dad bringing a television into the house. I grew up in Edmonton, 1957. We didn't see television before then. You Eastern sophisticates had it for a few years before us, and we would – Plug it in. It was Sylvania TV with halo light. Right. You know, I, it, there was a there was a kind of a fluorescent tube around the screen, which was supposedly easier on the eyes. And we would turn on the TV and just watch the the halo light come on, and then the the static. You know, the, the fuzz. That was your 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 generation's version of uh, the iPhone's uh, fingerprint ID. Yeah, exactly. A little it, bell and whistle to get you. Exactly. And but people bought yeah. televisions when CD players. Were introduced. I remember somebody saying it'll take nine years for the CD to replace records. Mm-hmm. It took three years. Mm-hmm. 
the ability of the public to adapt to new technology is just getting faster and faster and faster. If people are still watching television in the old-fashioned way, it still would be cheaper for the CBC to buy them an internet connection, put it on their, their computers, and then have the computer transfer it by Wi-Fi to their television set. It's not that difficult, and it's only going to get easier. Well, the CBC doesn't have to do that. That's happening anyhow. Exactly. And the, the entire industry is, is pushing people towards, uh, you know, internet-based television. So why not why not get ahead of that? I mean, why emulate CNN when cable news itself is in is in decline? And and now Arrow is now before the Supreme Court of the United States, a different way of taking over-the-air signals and popping it onto your television set. The the cable companies are opposed to this because they say it'll destroy our business model. Exactly. Their business model should be destroyed. What we're seeing now is such a radical transformation of media, and the CBC is so far behind the curve on this that it's ridiculous. They're no longer a service to Canadians. They are a service to themselves. You know, this parlor game, uh, Canadians have been playing it for decades. What should the CBC do? There's an urgency to it right now. Yes. And I, I really feel like you can't talk about this enough when you consider the, the, the broader picture. And I think that it is very likely that what I'm suggesting is going to be proven out, that, that there is no – when we move away from a, a regulatory framework that insists that there's news and people – no longer are paying for their cable subscriptions, so they're not creating that revenue that, that the broadcasters are then allocating towards news. Canadians would rather get a lot of their content from America anyhow. Right. And the savvy American organizations like you know Huffington Post are saying, well, Canadians are really interested in everything that we're doing. The only thing we don't have for them is a little bit of, you know, Canadians are interested in Canadian politics and Canadian content. So we'll set up a little outpost in Canada and we'll hire four or five journalists to just add that to what we're already doing here. And I could foresee a future of Canadian news where we don't really have Canadian news organizations. We have franchise offices of American news organizations. In that potential <laughs> dystopia, the role of the CBC as a distinctly Canadian news service becomes all the more necessary and urgent and unique if they get into that business while they still can. There is this, there's a lot of magical thinking going on at, at the CBC. I was talking to a very senior, long-time uh, person, uh, and I was talking to him a little bit about this idea that maybe this is an opportunity to really make some interesting changes. And he got very dismissive of that idea. And he said, there's nothing wrong with the CBC that a return to full funding and Justin Trudeau won't solve. Yikes. Um, yikes is right. Uh, and this is this idea that if only, if only the Messiah would show up, all would be well. We would not have any problems. I mean, this is the – and the CBC has been deluding itself. Maybe the next change in government will save us. Well, that hasn't historically been true. Liberal governments have cut more money than conservative governments well, from the CBC. Well, in fact, uh, I was my – my, I've got blood on my hands when I was in management in the, in the mid-90s and I was told, okay, cuts have come from the liberal government. You have to reduce your staff by 30 percent, introduce digital – technology, and invent new programs. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and we kind of did a lot of that, but it was exhausting. 
And it happened just around the time when NPR came knocking on my door. And I said, you know what? I think I'd rather try something else. Uh-huh. And, and that's why I left. Leave me with some hope here for what comes after. And I'm not saying what comes after the CBC, but what comes after for journalists? I mean, like, like hookers in architecture, we're supposed to get more respectable with age, and that's happened. And, you know, they gave Enright the Order of Canada. He used to just be a pain in the ass asking questions of politicians. And well, now he's a pain in the ass with, you know, with an Order of Canada. That's so. right, but he's got the Order of Canada. Now, there is this uh, class that uh, that journalists used to be able to retire to where you could you could teach and become a tenured prof or you could sit on committees or their foundations or all kind of nice and, – and you and you had the, uh, the, the the privilege and the benefit and the security to speak your mind about the way that it's being done these days. Exactly. From a perch like that. Is anything there going to be left? Oh, yeah. I think I think there is – I don't have a lot of answers at this point. I have a lot of wishful thinking too and I have a lot of hope that, that these 20-somethings will figure it out. I think they will and I think we have to be there to encourage them and not be cynical and not be say, well, you're foolish to even try. I think we have to give people the space to fail. And then when they fail, to celebrate that and say, okay, what have you learned from that? Now let's do it again. All right, but keep the ivory tower clean because people are going to want to come there too. I'm already getting people knocking on that door. (laughs) Thank you, Jeffrey. My pleasure. That's your Canada Land podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read everything you send me. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter as well, at Jesse Brown. The website for this show is at canadalandshow.com. If you haven't yet, go to audibletrial.com slash canadaland and get a free audiobook right now. I make this show with Christopher DeMello. I'll have another episode up on Monday, and if you like this show, recommend it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. 
she's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.